At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, some of our bottles can be remade in a whole new way, using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles using no new plastic, except the caps and labels. Learn more at madetoberemade.org. Support for this show comes from Atlassian. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Loom help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually, we're great, but together, we're so much better. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. From Cafe.com, this is Stay Tuned. I'm your host, Preet Bharara. I suspect that it's a pretty demoralizing time right now to be at The Division, and folks are asking themselves some pretty hard questions. Is it a form of resistance to stay? Or at some point, does it just become too difficult to live with yourself in work for an administration that is anti-civil rights? That's my guest on today's show, Vanita Gupta. For two and a half years at the end of the Obama administration, she was chief of the Civil Rights Division at the Department of Justice. I'll be talking to her about the NFL controversy, what life must be like for long-term public servants in the Justice Department now who care about civil rights, and what Jeff Sessions at the head of the Department of Justice means for America. But before we get to talking with Vanita, I want to get to some questions that folks have been asking. You've been tweeting at me. You've been leaving voicemail messages. I encourage you to do more of that. The number, once again, where you can leave a message is 669-247-7338. And, you know, a little less profanity in the future, guys. But also, I want to thank everyone who made their way to Apple Podcasts and left me a review. I'd like you to keep that up also. Anyway, today we have a couple of questions that I'll take a shot at. Uh, the first one is a tweet from at OpenMindedBunny. <laughs> OpenMindedBunny. <laughs> um, okay, wait, what, what is the... <laughs> Open-Minded Bunny asks, how much longer do we have to wait for Special Counsel Mueller's investigation? This is like waiting for Christmas as a kid. That's probably the question I got the most when I was the United States Attorney, if people knew that there was an investigation about something. It causes a lot of stress for folks, but I want to make one thing clear for everyone. You know, it is impossible to know, and it should be impossible for us on the outside to know, because it's a secret investigation. Especially when you have a high-profile investigation of this nature, you can be sure that a professional, and, and certainly a professional at the level of Robert Mueller and his team, are going to cross every T, dot every I, because the whole world is watching. And not only is the whole world watching, but it has immense consequence for the rule of law, for people's faith in the rule of law, and for the political future of the country when you're talking about an investigation of a sitting United States president and his colleagues and associates. So you know, we should want, I think, as Americans, on the one hand, this to be done carefully and thoroughly and no jumping to conclusions and chase down every avenue, even if it doesn't lead to fruit. But on the other hand, obviously want a certain kind of speed so a cloud is not hanging over the whole country and world for too long a period of time. If you could have a truth serum and apply it to Robert Mueller and interview him, I would like to believe that he couldn't tell you when the investigation will be done. And there's a good reason for that. Now, if he were able to say, I know today with respect to this part of the investigation, it will be done at 2 p.m. on December 16th. You should worry about that. Any prosecutor who can tell you the date and time in advance of when the investigation is going to be over has prejudged the investigation. And what I think everybody needs and hopes for 
And I know there are partisans on one side or the other, and they, they want an indictment, and some people think it's a witch hunt. What you really want, if you care about the rule of law, is for the truth to come out. And you don't want the prosecutors to have prejudged whether there will or will not be a case. And I know that's hard for people to understand, but it is a sign of independence and doing the right thing that the prosecutor himself or herself doesn't know exactly how long it's going to take. And it's frustrating, but that's the way it has to be. So that said, all investigations have a certain kind of momentum. Now, there's been a lot of talk about how aggressive the Mueller team has been. Now, we in our office that I led for seven and a half years were known to be aggressive. Now, one reason for that, by the way, is so that you could have the investigation take place more quickly. That's not just good for the investigation. It's good for the target, because if there's not going to be a charge, ultimately, you want to get it done as quickly as possible. So, you know, it's interesting to me that some of the associates of Donald Trump and others are complaining about the level of aggressiveness. In some ways, they should be pleased by that, because the harder and faster they go at this, seeking uh, searches quickly, seeking interviews quickly, the aggressiveness is linked completely to a need to get this done quickly so that you know the, the targets have repose and there's closure to this and the cloud either descends in a, in a firestorm or it's dissipated. So to answer your question in short, open-minded bunny, uh, you should keep an open mind and not expect a particular result on Christmas Day or Hanukkah uh, or Kwanzaa or Thanksgiving or any other date. It'll happen when it happens, and that's for the good of everyone, I think. So the next question that I'll address is a little bit more personal. And you know, a lot of people have asked me this question over time, and especially since the last podcast where I talked a little bit about you know the meeting with Donald Trump, and that's sort of you know, kind of relevant, is uh, how I broke the story to my kids. So I agreed through Senator Schumer to stay, but I still had this meeting coming up after Thanksgiving, and I was like a little worried about telling my children, who were not the greatest fans in America of Donald J. Trump, and in particular, my daughter was 15 at the time and is very strong-willed and reads the paper every day. And we went to dinner, and I was worried about not getting their blessing. And we sat around, and I said, you're not going to believe this, but I have a meeting at Trump Tower on Wednesday with Donald Trump. And they all thought I was kidding. You know, I don't have a lot of credibility in my house anyway. And this reduced my credibility a little bit. And they said, you got to be kidding. And I said, no, I got a serious look on my face. I said, I'm not kidding. And I, my daughter generally has a look of disapproval about her, uh, as a lot of people will appreciate. And so I was really worried about what she was going to say. And she really pierced through it better than almost anybody else I had spoken to. And rather than be upset or rather than say, because I don't like him politically, daddy, you shouldn't do it. She said, if you think that you can do your job and you can do more good staying than going, then you should stay. And that actually made me feel a lot better about it. And I just wanted to share that with you. Coming up after the break, my conversation with Vanita Gupta, head of the Leadership Conference of Civil and Human Rights, who ran the Civil Rights Division in the same Department of Justice that now Jeff Sessions runs. I was really excited to talk to her about what does it mean to resist? Is it appropriate? Is it appropriate in public life? Is it appropriate only in private life? Stay tuned. Support for this episode of Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. A huge monthly cell phone bill might feel inevitable. We've all gotten used to climbing rates, surprising surcharges, and expensive plans. And most of us shrug and assume that we're stuck, and there's no other option. So we just pay. But what if there was another option? An option that was much more affordable? Allow me to introduce you to Mint Mobile. 
Mint Mobile offers wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month when you purchase a three-month plan. All Mint Mobile plans come with high-speed data and unlimited talk and text delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. You can make the switch and keep the phone and number you have right now, along with all of your existing contacts. You can get this new customer offer and a new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month by going to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. At the Coca-Cola Company, Keurig Dr. Pepper, and PepsiCo, our bottles might still look the same, but some of them can be remade in a whole new way. Using 100% recycled plastic. New bottles made using no new plastic except the caps and labels. You'll be seeing more of these new bottles in more places, and that's thanks to you. Because when we get more bottles back, we can use less new plastic. Learn how our bottles are made to be remade at madetoberemade.org. Vanita Gupta, very good of you to join us on Stay Tuned. Great to be here. So let's get into what you've been doing. How would you describe what the mission of the Civil Rights Division has been in recent American history? Well, I think since its founding, actually, in 1957, the Civil Rights Division of the Justice Department has come to be the part of the Justice Department that I think really is its conscience in a lot of ways. Uh, And the work it's done for voting rights, for criminal justice reform, policing, LGBT rights, you name it, has often been really upstream. And it's a pretty unusual part of the Justice Department. It's the one part of the Justice Department that is about affirmative litigation and enforcement, which is why what's happening now at the Justice Department is so deeply distressing. Does the Civil Rights Division change depending on who's the president of the United States, and should it? Well, technically, it should only change insofar as there are a change of priorities, because uh, you know every administration brings its own priorities. But there are close to 700 career employees of the Civil Rights Division who day in, day out uh, have a law enforcement job. It's to enforce the civil civil rights laws that Congress has given the Justice Department to enforce. And note that the division came about in a time when states were resisting equal enforcement of laws. There were people dying, African-Americans dying, who were trying to exercise their right to vote. There were tremendous barriers that had been erected throughout our history that prevented the full integration of all communities in this country. And the Civil Rights Division's mission really is to ensure that the most vulnerable and marginalized among us have their civil rights um, enforced. And What gets me and what galls me really is that uh, I remember I had an oversight hearing. I had to appear before Congress and the now attorney general, but then Senator Sessions looked at me in the eye and accused me in a very kind of derogatory tone of being an aggressive civil rights lawyer. I wear that as a badge of honor. And I think that it is important for the head of a component at the Justice Department to be aggressive about the laws that that we are enforcing. I can't imagine. And tell me, Preet, if you've ever been accused of being in a derogatory way, an aggressive criminal prosecutor, when frankly that is often heralded, although maybe with you that may be, that may be slightly different. Actually, in fact, you mentioned it. I had a conversation with Jeff Sessions directly on the day that Donald Trump initially asked me to stay on. And literally, Jeff Sessions said to me, you're an aggressive prosecutor and I like that. 
there you go. So in my case, it was meant, I think, in a nice way, although that didn't last, obviously. Well, that didn't. But I mean, but that is the double standard is that somehow being an aggressive civil rights lawyer and being the head of the civil rights division are things that are frowned upon when actually shouldn't this country have a person who's heading up that component who believes that the law should be enforced aggressively, particularly ones that are aimed at ensuring that the more disadvantaged or marginalized communities in our country have their rights protected. That's exactly the kind of person I would think the Justice Department wants at the helm. Uh, And clearly now, Jeff Sessions is uh, taking us back uh, in years on so many issues on civil rights. He has a decidedly anti-civil rights agenda. You know, none of it surprises me given his tone and tenor as a senator, but it's a very different change. Would you say he's aggressively anti-civil rights or just not aggressive in favor of it enough? I would say he's aggressively anti-civil rights. In what way do you think he's the most aggressive anti-civil rights? You know, I don't think that there's only one. I mean, if you look at multiple voting rights cases, but one in particular, a challenge to Texas's voter ID law, where the career lawyers had spent, you know, months and months in trial and hearings, years prosecuting these cases, establishing that Texas had actually engaged in intentional racial discrimination in enacting its voter ID law. And actually, numerous federal courts in one of the most conservative judicial circuits, the Fifth Circuit, vindicated that position. And one of the first actions that the attorney general took was to withdraw that claim and reverse this longstanding position. And he did it in LGBT rights cases. He's done it in taking, in reversing the Holder's Smart on Crime memo. So on criminal justice reform, LGBT rights, voting rights, it isn't just that he's kind of being passive about the enforcement of these laws. It's that he is actually trying to turn the clock back on a lot of the progress that we've made. I'm not sure everyone appreciates that there are, there are 700 career employees at the Civil Rights Division 380-some-odd attorneys in the Civil Rights Division, which, by the way, is a lot larger than even my own office, which was a gigantic United States attorney's office. We only had, you know, 220 attorneys. How do you think it feels for the career folks in the Civil Rights Division, having heard you get reprimanded for being an aggressive civil rights lawyer, now he's their boss? I think that they are likely right now at this point, nine months in, asking themselves some serious questions. Is it a form of resistance to stay? Uh, in their jobs and to do what they can using the power. And it's an incredible power that you have being at the Justice Department, as you know, to do what you can. Or at some point, does it just become too difficult to live with yourself in work for an administration that is anti-civil rights and is preventing your work from seeing the light of day? This is a lot of what happens with the division is the career lawyers are going to try to continue to pursue their cases, but memos are going to get stuck in the front office. Positions that have been long advocated are going to get reversed. They're going to start to figure out how to put people in these positions who don't actually believe in civil rights enforcement. So I I suspect that it's a pretty demoralizing time right now to be at the division and that, that folks are asking themselves some pretty hard questions. But can I separate out two things? Yeah. One is, I think you would agree that it's appropriate when a new administration comes in to have its own priorities. Of course. Law enforcement priorities. Yep. It's quite a different thing to decide not to enforce civil rights law as written. So do you think it's appropriate for people in the civil rights division who are career lawyers and you know are supposed to do their jobs to resist in some way those priorities? Is that right? I think it's a really difficult question, right? Like for you and I, we are on the outside and we can we know what our values are, we know what animated us to do the work that we did. 
And so it's easy for me to sit on the outside and say, gosh, how can you kind of continue to work for this administration given how anti-civil rights they are? But at the same time, they a lot of these folks, they have clients. They, they're, they're in communities that they've been in for a long time, and they don't want to abandon that. But I think it's going to be a highly personal decision for every career lawyer and employee to make a decision for themselves about how much can they actually get done. If they're able to continue to do some of their good work, then my hope is that they're going to stay. But what's um, the point in leaving, I mean, just to play devil's advocate for a moment, what's the point in leaving if you care about the issue and you have some autonomy on your aggressive docket of civil rights cases to leave and let someone else, presumably who doesn't care as much, come in? Like, why, why, why isn't your advice to everyone, stay, stay, stay? Now, look, the question is, there are going to be some sections in the Civil Rights Division that I'm hoping are going to be largely untouched and people, these lawyers and, and employees are going to continue to be able to do what they want to do. Which, which, which areas do you think those are? My hope is that that's in the area of disability rights, that some of the educational opportunities work, although even a lot of their work now is getting, is, is getting stymied. So for some reason, you think disability rights issues are less politicized and there's more No, agreement? it's not that. It's that... The sections where the cases are more about individuals rather than systemic reform, there's going to be more of an ability to enforce federal civil rights laws for individuals. The real pocket of of resistance that the attorney general is showing on civil rights is about anything related to systemic reform. But but he, but he do you agree he has the authority to do that? That's more about a priority rather than enforcing a particular statute that's an act. So in that instance, yes, it's a priority. But on the civil rights division's work, where Congress in 94, after Rodney King was beaten in the streets of Los Angeles, and we all know the history and story of what happened in Los Angeles there with the LAPD, Congress enacted a statute that told the Justice Department that gave it a legal mandate to investigate patterns and practices of unconstitutional policing. And then when found, if found, to fix them, Sessions is basically walking away from that legal responsibility. I have no doubt in my mind that he would love to just throw out that statute altogether. That is actually an abdication of a legal responsibility that goes far beyond priorities. I want to ask a couple of questions about the NFL protest and various athletes taking a knee during the performance of the national anthem. If you were in the NFL, would you be taking a knee? Yes, I would be taking a knee. We've got a huge problem with with police violence and the sense that there is no justice when there are police killings. And there are a lot of people in this country that are trying to grapple with where the solutions are going to come. And there are a lot of there's a lot of anger and pain. And you know this and I know this from cases that that we've both been involved in. These are really serious issues for this country. And you have athletes that have just like many others in the country have been exercising their right to protest this way. The bigger question is, is it appropriate for the president to insert himself through tweets and criticize these players and call them fireable offenses for for the fact that they're exercising their First Amendment rights and, you know, calls them SOBs on, on, a, on the stage on Friday. I mean, he has created this. And I think it is an, a totally appropriate for these athletes, for the NFL, for the NBA to react in response. I mean, you know, this is, again, he created this whole issue by by inserting himself into this debate. But, so sorry, we shouldn't he, be he surprised. In fairness, yeah. the president didn't create the issue of police shootings and, and bad policing. No, no, no. That's yeah. That's right. I'm, I'm talking about creating the whole the last weekend that prompted these athletes and the associations to speak out. 
I am proud. There's a long and storied history of athletes taking a knee and protesting, and it's been part of the change and progress in this country. But I want to remind people that just four weeks ago, he pardoned Arpaio, and now he's criticizing black athletes for exercising their First Amendment rights. Well, he's, he's said more negative things about popular black athletes in this country than he ever has about Vladimir Putin. Or the neo-Nazis that marched in Charlottesville. This is not a time that is normal, and it is not a time when staying in one's lane and kind of keeping your blinders on and moving straight and kind of keeping to your uh, business as usual is feasible for a lot of folks. I mean, a lot of us who love this country deeply don't feel like there's any choice or to this kind of ability to sit on the sidelines and just kind of keep in your swim lane. These folks have huge platforms, and I appreciate that they're using them to make important points. There's an interesting question, right? It has often been the case that people don't like other people's methods, and there are some people who say, I'm with yeah. you, but we got to go a little more slowly. And some people say, I'm with you, but we got to go a lot more aggressively and even maybe militaristically. And and I thought I'd, I'd just read to you a passage from what I think is one of the best pieces of writing in the history of the English language, and that's Martin Luther King's letter from Birmingham jail, written from a jail in 1963. And Dr. King wrote, I must confess that over the past few years, I have been gravely disappointed with the white moderate. I have almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in his stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner, but the white moderate, who is more devoted to order than to justice who prefers a negative peace, which is the absence of tension, to a positive peace, which is the presence of justice, who constantly says, I agree with you in the goal you seek, but I cannot agree with your methods of direct action. That's been a basic and fundamental question in the quest for justice and equality going back to the beginning of time, is it not? Yeah, I mean, I love that piece and think it's so important because... This work and the progress in this country has always involved a level of disruption and a level of courage on the part of individuals who were willing to take the criticism and to take the heat and to be doing it strategically, of course. But this whole notion that we can kind of mythologize and have MLK Day once a year and, and celebrate all of that while not recognizing actually what it took and how dirty that progress and how messy it was to be able to achieve it is something that we're seeing play itself out now. When I, after Charlotte's there were a lot of civil rights leaders who part of the Leadership Conference Coalition were speaking out, not about white supremacy and the Klan as being you know, something that we need to be mindful of, but actually going beyond that and saying, connect the dots, people. You can't just issue statements. Uh, I mean, forget the fact that the president couldn't even issue a statement. But with the others, other a lot of other folks in elected office were issuing very profound, important statements condemning the violence uh, and, and the racial hatred that that was on display in Charlottesville without recognizing that the very policies around voter suppression laws that they've been enforcing where uh, about federal courts over and over again are finding that states have been engaging in intentional racial discrimination to prevent African-Americans and Latinos from voting, that these policies are actually part of a white supremacist agenda. And it makes people feel very uncomfortable. It sounds like, you know, these civil rights lawyers that are connecting these dots are come up somehow like, you know, being radical or fringe when actually we've got to understand how these things are actually 
actually connected to very real policies that are getting enacted today. Our criminal justice system, in a lot of ways, and the turn back of the clock on reform is a part of this, too. And so I know it's uncomfortable for folks to have those dots connected. But at the end of the day, we've got to be about more than just words. We've got to be about action. And different people, there's going to be different lines that people feel like they're crossing in order to speak those actions. Let's talk about policing and the unfortunate and all too frequent phenomenon of a police officer somewhere shooting an unarmed black kid. You and I have had a lot of conversations about this and we've done a lot of work in this area and it is incredibly frustrating and people have been angry at me and I know people have been angry at you and you're someone whose whole life has been dedicated to making sure that policing is done in a constitutional way and that everyone is treated equally. But what do you have to say to those folks? Those cases are the most painful. Uh, and when I look back at my at my time at the Justice Department, I would say that those cases, above all, really represent to me the failure of the law and of the courts to provide justice. I, too many times during the course of, of my tenure, I we had to decline charges in cases where a shooting absolutely should not have happened, but the law um, would not allow for there to be uh, prosecution. And you look at the Philando Castile case out of Minnesota uh, involving a, an African-American man who was seated in a car with his girlfriend next to him and a child behind a four-year-old kid. And the girlfriend caught this all on video. Philando Castile was stopped at a traffic stop, did everything to comply uh, had been stopped, I think, something like, I'm going to get this wrong, but something like 47 times in the last three years. He knew what was at stake in being a black man at a traffic stop. He was trying to do everything he could to comply and was reaching for his driver's license and got shot and killed. All of this caught on video. And there was an acquittal in that case that I think was a deep reminder of how infused in our culture, the criminalization of black men is and how much of a role that that can play in jury outcomes. And prosecutors, federal prosecutors, like the federal prosecutors in the Civil Rights Division who do this work are some of the most mission-driven, impassioned prosecutors who are trying to seek justice in these cases, but know through sheer experience of trying these cases and losing them over and over again that the bar is so much higher to obtain a conviction in a police shooting case than in many others because of the cultural assumptions that exist in everyday people like you, like you and me and who are serving on, on juries. And so it isn't just the limitation of the law. These prosecutors know what it's like to actually bring cases where there's incontrovertible evidence and to lose. And of course, they're thinking in when they can bring cases and, and get justice. Right now, there is a real sense for very good reason that the shooting and killing of an unarmed black man at the hands of the police will bring no justice. I, though, do also know from the the work that we that the Justice Department was able to do quite a, quite importantly on the pattern practice systemic investigations of police departments where training and accountability systems can be so abject or inept, that they are not only they're failing communities and they're failing officers, that we can't lose sight of the focus on systemic reform, even as people are focused on the lack of individual accountability. Because in a lot of ways, 
we want there to never be these incidents to begin with. And you need training. You need accountability systems. You need hiring systems in place. You need police departments that are kind of set up and equipped to at least do everything they can to advocate and promote constitutional policing. And in the police departments where we ended up making very serious findings, those things had totally failed. And those are really important to any kind of prevention of of these kinds of terrible incidents to begin with. And that's where the Justice Department right now seems to be have wiped its hands clean of any responsibility to to really deal with those issues. Look, it's interesting because there are other areas where there's excessive use of force and bad conduct on the part of law enforcement that in my experience has been easier to address. And the example I'm thinking of is excessive violence in some of our jails. I think one of the worst places on earth is a jail called Rikers Island, which is in the city of New York where you and I got to work together to address an issue of unbelievable violence that was unnecessary on the part of corrections officers towards inmates, and in particular the cases that we brought, often juvenile inmates. And I want to thank you on air for being a fighter for those cases. And people may not appreciate this, but you know we, we tried to operate in a completely sovereign and independent way <laughs> in the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York. We were required, and you know I chafed at this, we were required to, oh, get, yes, the appro- we were required to get the approval before bringing a certain kind of civil rights case from the Justice Department and the Civil Rights Division that you led at the time when we were deciding what to do on the Rikers Island case. And I just wanted to thank you in front of everyone for cutting through a lot of bureaucracy without going through the usual 53 cycles of bureaucracy. So I want to thank you for that. That, That's the part of me that apparently was too aggressive for Jeff Sessions. So there you go. But that was... That was the part of you that I liked very much. And I think what people may not appreciate is how much support you have from people on the other side of the ideological divide, so to speak. There are some people who think that if you're on one side, you can't even have friends who are on the other side. Uh, I happen to have a lot of conservative friends, and I disagree with them on a lot of things. Uh, but they're my friends, and I think they're good people, and we have disagreements of opinion. But you can't you know, close yourself off to those folks. And I just want to read a couple of quotes from people who you might not expect who gave you some support. This is from David Keene, who is a former president of the NRA, And he said about you, quote, Vanita is a very good person. I've worked with her on criminal justice reform issues. Most of the Obama administration people have been so ideologically driven that they won't talk to people who disagree with them. Vanita is someone who works with everyone. She both listens to and works with people from all perspectives to accomplish real good. That's the NRA. It gets even better or worse, depending on your perspective. Uh, Grover Norquist, huge figure on the right on tax tax issues and other things. He said to the Washington Post that you have, quote, been open to working with conservatives on good policy. She has played a strong role in the left-right cooperation in criminal justice issues. What's up with that? I will work with whoever is open to working on, uh, on issues to get progress. And with criminal justice reform issues, I have spent my whole career working to reform our criminal justice system And in the last many years, there have been champions on the right that have been working on these issues, not for the same reasons necessarily that I am. Does it matter? Does it matter what the reasons are? Well, I I mean, I think it's important to be uh, aware of people's reasons, but uh, but if we can agree on outcomes, uh, then and and on the long kind of the the goals over the long term, I will work with whoever. It, to me, it's really important to be practical about these things while being uh, having the integrity to be fully aware and cognizant of what the limitations of those partnerships are. So, for example, 
if you think there are too many people in prison and that's unjust, and other people think the fact that there are too many people in prison costs too much, you can work with them. Yeah. I mean, I did it all the time. To me, what my primary animating uh, motivation for working on criminal justice reform has been the grave racial injustice that has come about as a result of many criminal justice policies over the last several decades. But for a lot of people on the right, there really is a sense that the government overreached at the state and federal level, that it's cost too much. And um, I, in the area of criminal justice reform, I will continue to work with people who understand that our system of mass incarceration has gone on too long and, and needs to end. What pisses me off is this notion that uh, you can either be for crime fighting or for constitutional policing, or you can be for crime fighting or against. If you're if you're for constitutional policing, you're anti-police. Or this is what I, I actually think the rhetoric coming from Jeff Sessions right now on policing is really divisive uh, because. There's, of course, law enforcement and federal prosecutors yeah, have a really a- important job to do and are doing it. But there's, it's not to the exclusion of, of ensuring constitutional policing and civil rights. In fact, those things go hand in hand. Yeah, and, I'm, right? and I'm glad you said that because I'll tell you what pisses me off. From the other perspective, there are people who think that all cops are bad. They think all agents are bad. They think all prosecutors are bad. I was in an event recently. You know, there were people who didn't like the fact that I was there because of the kind of work that I used to do. And I get that, and I respect that, and I appreciate that. But something briefly set me off when I heard someone say in a, in a question, and I, I saw a sign that said, prosecution is not public interest. And yeah, there, there, are, there are bad eggs and bad apples and whatever food item you want to use. On either side, as you describe, there are people who think that everyone is all good or all bad, and it's not as simple as that. Yeah, it isn't as simple as that. And I refuse to ascribe to that. That's so overly simplistic. And at the same time, it's also not just about a few individual bad apples in any profession. There's some systemic problems. There are systemic issues, right? And that's what... Yeah, I mean, the problem is everyone wants to caricature the other side. Especially when there's a lot of anger and pain. I mean, I, you know, I get the impetus, but I actually don't think that it that it moves us forward. I mean, that's the thing where when even at a time when... Ferguson and Baltimore and Chicago and all, you know, every week there was a viral video of police violence that was coming across my desk that was deeply painful. That wasn't a situation where, you know, there were police officers and and, and uh, chiefs of police who thought, well, of course, Vanita is going to be anti-police because she's the head of the Civil Rights Division. Right. And yet I was walking into every one of those conferences understanding how challenging policing is, how difficult these issues are, while also recognizing the deep and incredible pain and history of policing and race in this country. I don't think that these things are somehow divided or polarized. We're not going to make any progress on these issues so long as people think of these things as incredibly simplistic. It isn't an us and them proposition that's going to get us through to actually get to transformation uh, on these issues. I want to ask you one final question. Will you consider running for office to make more change? I wouldn't run for office. Why not? I, you know, my my way of making change is I've been a civil rights lawyer my whole life, and I believe in trying to to use the tools of the law um, to promote change and where the law is insufficient to change the law. Well, you know what? One way to change the law is to become a lawmaker. I am right? so glad that there are others out there who are willing to put themselves out there to become a lawmaker. Right. I, you know, like, what, Je- like Jeff Sessions, for example. Well, you know, he got elected. Um, right. So I, know. I go back to my point. I know. Look, there's a role for, are you going to run for office? I you am, know, everyone's, I, <laughs> everyone's asking you whether you're going to run for office. I know, but this office. is my podcast, so I ask the question. No, you tell me 
me, you could I could ask you some questions too. Look, it's it's not my cup of tea. It's not my cup of tea either. So since you've left the civil rights division, I've been at least really heartened to see that you're continuing to do important civil rights work, but from the outside as a private citizen, as the head of the Leadership Conference on Civil and Human Rights. Tell us a little bit about why you decided to do that. It was just too hard almost immediately with the Muslim ban to conceive of sitting on the sidelines when so much of the work that we have been doing collectively is vulnerable and under attack. This is exactly where I need to be. I'm working with organizations as storied as the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, MALDEF, the ACLU, Southern Poverty Law Center. Uh, They're all part of the leadership conference, and we're working really hard to do what we can to fight for justice and inclusion. And, And it's an honor to do it, even as dark as these days may seem. Vanita Gupta, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Preet. Great to be here. So I want to end the episode in the same way that I plan to uh, at the end of every episode, with an item from the news that hit me in a particular way. Now, there's been a lot of talk about uh, the NFL protest and the players taking a knee or um, locking arms. What struck me about that was the decision by a particular owner, and the owners don't seem to have been as sympathetic, but a particular owner of the Jacksonville Jaguars, Shad Khan. And what struck me about that is Shad Khan is an immigrant to this country. He came from Pakistan at age 16 and grew into, I think, the 70th wealthiest man in America. He's worth multi-billions of dollars. And on the other hand, a big supporter of Donald Trump. And you wonder how a practicing Muslim immigrant from Pakistan who made billions in the United States could come to support someone like Donald Trump, given his rhetoric and given his policies. One wonders what he thought after the travel ban. And then he decided in a picture that I'm sure some of you saw, and if you haven't, you should look it up. And you see kind of a short Pakistani-American guy locking arms with two large African-American men who are in their Jaguars uniform with their eyes closed in silent protest on a football field. You don't see that very often. The point of all that is the ability to think for yourself and disagree with people you may have otherwise once supported or voted for. You know, life is complicated. The issues are complicated. And you can support someone on some things and not support them on other things. And I think that there are too many people all the time who are predictable and you know how they're going to vote and you know what they're going to say and you know what they're going to reject and you know what they're going to scream about. And it's nice to see people who take a stand and believe what they believe and don't always follow in lockstep what someone else believes. And so for that image and for that moment, I thank Shad Khan. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Vanita Gupta, and thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the episode, do me a favor and head over to Apple Podcasts to leave us a review. Thanks so much to the more than 1,000 of you who have already done it. I love it. Don't forget, if you have questions about news, politics, justice, I want to answer them. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara, or even better, give me a call at 669-247-7338. Turns out that that's 669-24-PREET. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe.com and WNYC Studios. It's produced by the team at Pineapple Street Media, Henry Malofsky, Jenna Weiss-Berman, Joel Lovell, and Max Linsky. We're recorded at CDM Studios, located in the Southern District of New York. Our music is by Andrew Dost. And special thanks to Julia Doyle, Jared Milford, and Jeff Eisenman. We have new episodes coming for you very soon. I'm Preet Bharara. Stay tuned. Stay tuned.